0: everyone, welcome back to the Midtown Midweek Podcast where we take the sermon on Sunday and we talk more about it and unpack it to equip us to help us fall more in love with Jesus. I am joined once again by Pastor John Ludovina. Hey John. Hey Jake, glad to be here with you this week. So to recap us, we were talking about 1 Timothy chapter 5 and really talking about what it means to have spiritual authority in the church and how we want to do that well. And Paul in the scripture even gives a caveat of when leadership goes wrong, here's how you approach it. And this is a personal subject matter that, uh, as a church family, this is something we want to continue to grow in. And so, John, I want you to just go ahead and have the floor. What were some things that didn't make the final cut of the sermon?
1: So, interesting thing with this sermon is, originally, I wasn't planning to preach the sermon. Uh, Tim, who is getting ready to go plant up in Charlotte with Citizens Church, who's kind of taken the lead on this whole First Timothy series, to the hilarious point that one of my kids calls him First Timothy. Uh, which I just love that. As they uh, should. <laughs> so Tim was planning to preach. And the thought there was uh, a little bit more of an outsider is going to preach this passage on how to take care of your pastors. And that'll be a little less weird than one of our pastors preaching about how you should be taking care of me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then really in light of some different situations that are going on, which all of them, I, I don't have the liberty to talk about, but we just realized we there were some things we wanted to say from our heart to the hearts of our people Uh, and it would actually come better from one of our pastoral staff rather than Tim who's getting ready to head out. So, uh, he would have done a fantastic job with it as well. Uh, but it has looked like just for this week, I've been scrambling a lot to kind of pull it together, uh, more last minute than normally. And there was, the truth is more than any sermon I can remember, there's a ton of stuff on the cutting floor from this one. So, uh, I'm going to touch on some of that stuff, uh, but certainly not everything. There's a lot of it. Uh, You mentioned it being a a personal topic and that's definitely true uh, because for us working as pastors in our church of Midtown is not first and foremost professional. It is professional. We do get a living. We're thankful for that. We love our jobs so much of the time. Uh, But first and foremost, all of this stuff is personal. It's, We love Jesus and want more people to know Jesus. We want to see people grown up into maturity. We want to see the most beautiful church family that we've ever seen. And we want to be a part of it and we want to lead out in that. And so uh, when stuff is not beautiful, when stuff is less than uh, the image and the design that God has for the beautiful city on a hill that his church family is supposed to be, that hurts us. It is not just a matter of, oh, shucks, wish that was better. It's it's hurtful when people don't think well of us or misunderstand a situation and hear accusations against us and they don't know any different and they just believe that now. That hurts us because it's not just on a personal level of, oh, no, you think bad about me. It's, oh, no, you now have less trust in me and less There's it lowers the ability of our pastors to lead our church family to be the beautiful church family that we want to be when this stuff is rampant, when this kind of cancerous stuff is sneaking in. And so uh, it's very personal for us. We love Midtown. Midtown has been a labor of love since day one. Uh, First and foremost, love for Jesus. Secondly, love for our church and the people in it. And especially, you know, even just thinking about Bailey preaching a few weeks ago when lies are being used to deceive people and to lead them to destruction. uh, That hurts us every time. There is never a time where we just go to sleep saying, oh, well, we knew that was coming. They weren't that healthy. They're not that mature. It's No, every time it hurts. Uh, Whether it is against us or not, it hurts when our people aren't doing well. And so some of that stuff got involved in the sermon. And um, it's very, very, very personal.
0: Yeah. And part of that comes with we really value being family together, you know, the life on life relationship, having each other over our homes, like sharing meals together. There's this sense of like deep connection and relational closeness. And I even think about even in my family, if one of my kids had something against me, we would be off relationally and we're still in the same home and I'm still called to be family with my kids. But if something's off and we're not talking about it, oh man, like I'm going to take that really hard because this is someone, this is my child that I love. So, John, what were some of the things that didn't make the sermon?
1: Yeah, I had a couple of quicker things. Um, in the beginning of the sermon, I kind of unpacked verse 24 and 25 about this idea of conspicuous versus inconspicuous. And really quickly, Paul applies those categories to both sin and to good works. And uh, we just ended up cutting for for time one of my favorite examples that I wanted to tell there Uh, which is an example of inconspicuous good works. Uh, And the idea that all of it gets known in the end, none of it's hidden from God and all of it gets revealed at some point, whether here on this earth or in the the world to come. And so one of my favorite examples of this was a a member of our church family named Steve Von Fange, who died a few years ago. Uh, He was absolutely one of the most spirit filled, spirit led and generous people you could have ever met. And one of the things that Steve would do is he would uh, he would just take time praying and asking the Holy Spirit to prompt him about individual people that he needed to bless financially. And then he would often, I mean, so, you know, different times he'd give $100, $500. I know of at least one time where he gave $10,000 to someone. And oftentimes it would just come with a little note that was, hey, I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I know about times in my life when I've been financially stressed and the Holy Spirit put it on my heart and my mind to give this amount of money to you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it reminds you of God's goodness, that he knows what's going on in your life. And, you know, it just, uh, it it was inconspicuous though, in the fact that no one knew what was going on mm-hmm. other than the person who received this blessing. And he would always say that. He was like, please don't tell people about this. this the point was, it was the opposite of people who want a big you know, clap on the back for being generous. He, he didn't, there were no strings attached. He just wanted to be generous as the spirit led. And, uh, and and then after he died at his funeral, I believe his brother was speaking at his funeral and told a story about a time that Steve had been very robustly generous to him. And then he said, just out of curiosity, would you raise your hand if Steve ever did something similar to that for you? And we were in the Blanding auditorium with, you know, 800 people packed mm-hmm. to the wall, standing room only. And it felt like every single hand in the room went up mm-hmm. and it was like, man, talk about an inconspicuous good work being known at some point. And I was just looking around in awe because each one of us thought like, man, Steve did that one cool thing for one of us one time. Nope. He had done it for <laughs> all of us. He must really love me in yeah, particular. Was, and, uh, uh, it was just pretty incredible to all just get to celebrate, uh, God's generosity on display. So one more little thing on this idea of inconspicuous and conspicuous is that both for the sins and for the good works, he says that nothing stays hidden forever. And, you know, you can cross-reference that with Hebrews saying that all is laid bare before the eyes of God to whom we must give an account, that everyone at some point will give an account to God that lines up with Hebrews 13 that says pastors will give an account for how we led. Uh, but one there's a couple implications of that idea that nothing will stay hidden forever. And one is uh, we're a little bit off the hook for trying, for, for stressing out too much about perfect justice being served here on earth. Our aim is perfect justice, no partiality, but there are times where we do not have all the information. There are times when perfect justice can't be served. And there's good news for the believer that ultimately perfect justice will always be served, Mm -hmm. that God sees it all and everything will be revealed at some point. And so whether it's perfect justice on the behalf of a sinner whose sins are hidden or whether it's perfect justice on behalf of a a wonderful person whose good works are hidden, none of it's hidden from God. And so there's just a for if you feel a lot of pressure, like you need to get credit for your good works. You don't have to have that pressure anymore because God sees it. And if the good works are motivated by love for him and love for people, he already knows. And whether you get credit or not, perfect justice will always be served. There's just there's just a real uh, confidence there. Not a demotivating confidence that we don't need to fight for justice because God will take care of it. No, we aim for justice. We fight for justice. And we can continue functioning in a world that's so imperfect that we just know sometimes we're not going to get that. Uh, another thing that didn't make the final cut was in the money section. Uh, one of my favorite passages about money that, where Paul actually uses a similar idea of uh, not muzzling the ox is in 1 Corinthians 9. And in 1 Corinthians 9, he really gives this um, this twofold, uh, I don't know if tension's the right word, but uh, what, he, what he really explains in 1 Corinthians 9 is that for him, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, he's compelled to preach the gospel at one point he says woe to me if I do not preach the gospel and so there's this instruction there of like if a minister is not willing to preach the gospel or compelled and motivated to preach the gospel with no money then there's some issues there but then in the same chapter he says now on the flip side if churches aren't compelled to take care of their pastors then there's an issue there. And so I've just always loved that, that like in the healthiest places, you should have ministers of the gospel who are compelled, who have a fire in their bones to make disciples whenever possible and churches who are compelled to return the generosity and say, hey, we want to make sure you're taken care of well so you can do that well. And we're all doing that together and we're all really synced up. That's kind of the ideal when you have pastors who are motivated by money that's a problem. When you have churches that are demotivated to take care of their pastors, that's a problem. And you kind of get division and, and disunity. And so I love that at Midtown, that's that's not really been the case, that I think there is a lot of unity there. And uh, I, I mentioned this uh, in the sermon, but just the way Paul talks about that being compelled to preach the gospel with or without pay Uh, all of our pastors at some point did their jobs for free. They were pastoring before they ever had the title of pastor or any kind of a paycheck for it. And so there's just a real high level of confidence that comes from that of, uh, I I know these guys' hearts. I know what they're in it for. And that's to see Jesus made famous. That's what we want more than anything else. Uh, Some other stuff that that did not make the final cut. There is a growing perception in our culture that pastors are supposed to be counselors. Uh, so I just want to say some some really direct things about this. Uh, counseling can be such a wonderful gift. I go see a counselor. I am so thankful for the counselor's role in my life. He is a gift from God. He speaks truth to me and has helped me out in lots of different really hard seasons with ministry, with my family, with adopting four kids at once, all of that. Uh, like any profession, including pastor's. Uh, There are good counselors and there are not so good counselors, but then there's this real added role uh, really for both pastors and for counselors of there there there's a personal chemistry and a personal connection that even if a counselor may be very good on their own merits, they may not be a good fit for you as a counselor. And there could be a counselor who's not that good of a counselor, but chemistry wise feels like a great fit for you, which is a little bit dangerous. Uh, I want to say really clearly we love and appreciate faithful counselors who speak truth to people and help them when they are dealing with really hard things. And we do not have any biblical conviction that pastors are supposed to be counselors. Counseling is part of our job at times. It's not the wholeness of it. And one of the, one of the differences between pastors and counselors is that biblically speaking, pastors are supposed to have authority. Counselors are supposed to have influence. However, ironically, in our culture, we generally are more comfortable giving a counselor authority in our lives when biblically that's not really a category. And we oftentimes are very uncomfortable letting pastors have anything more than influence. So it's a weird little twist there. I think part of that is the one-on-one feel of it, of just a one-on-one relationship with someone oftentimes feels more emotionally compelling as well uh, many counselors and a lot of counseling training is that you never tell anyone what to do. All you do is ask questions and listen and try to get them to see the truth on their own and to lead them to the steps they need to take. That's not a terrible thing. There are lots of times in pastoral counseling situations where we try to lead people through questions, to realize the truth on the own, on their own, and to take the steps they
0: need to take. And the Just spirit by, gives them this light bulb moment, and it's oh, like, "Oh my goodness!" Praise God! We
1: point it? them to the scriptures, and they go, "Oh, so does this mean this?" And it's like, "Oh, is that what you think that means?" Yeah, yeah, praise that's Jesus. exactly what it means. Just totally yeah. do that. But also, as pastors, there is an overseeing and a shepherding and an authoritative role of sometimes we look someone dead in the eyes and say, "Hey, you're wrong right now, and this is not okay. And here's the scripture that that to to confirm what I'm saying to you right now. This is not." me trying to have some manipulative, controlling dominion over you in some kind of creepy way. This is what the scripture says. And part of my job as a pastor is to call you to repent and obey God's word, to follow Jesus in that humility and in that submission. And there just are really times where people don't like that. They don't want pastors to do that. They they just want counselors to be their kind of friend, buddy, counselor. And, you know, in a lot of ways, we would say, Probably, if that's all your counselor is, that's not the best counseling you could get. But even then, uh, we, we don't have that biblical conviction that pastors are supposed to be counselors.
0: Even if you look at church history, for the first 1,500 years, church clergy operated, wore a lot of hats to be a pastor and a preacher, and people went to them for pastoral advice. It was really not until... The enlightenment where there was a separation between spiritual quote unquote things and internal natural things. And so the rise of therapy and modern counseling arose as a separation from spiritual matters when realistically it's, it's holistic. Like God cares about body and soul and emotions and feelings. And so we need to practice sharp discernment because just like a pastor could point to a Bible and quote verses. They could be way off the same way with a a counselor using the Bible doesn't necessarily mean that they are correct, but we value their place so long as it fits holistically with the Bible's counsel and church leadership. And that's why even uh, when people come to us and they need advice for counseling, we have a whole list of people within our city like you should go talk to this guy or this guy or this woman. They're awesome. So just in case you've heard the misrepresentation
1: that Midtown hates counseling or counselors, that's not true. We pay a good bit of money to support and assist a lot of our members going to get counseling because we've looked at the situation in their lives and said, man, that's above our pay grade. They need some really specific help with that. We're all the time looking for healthy counselors in our city who are going to give people the best counsel possible. I'll tell you one real specific thing that can always be pretty awkward is we love when counselors understand the role that pastors and the church have in someone's life and they support that biblically. It's hard when we send someone to counseling or they just go to counseling and their counselor said, well, your pastor's crazy and you don't need to do that. And it's like, okay, well, wait a second. Uh, you're supposed to just be the one with influence. And do you understand you've now, you've now participated in the thing we're talking about in the sermon where you're discrediting and maligning the pastor's authority in their life. That's that's not the best look, but I get it. There's so many crazy unhealthy pastors out there and so many counselors out there who have had really bad church experiences and a lot of pain from pastors. So a lot of that's coming from a personal place. Uh, Another thing that I love is when we get the opportunity to talk to a counselor and compare notes and be be united so that now both of us are approaching this person in the most helpful way possible. And we're not in the dark trying to help without you know, the counselor's getting one story, the pastor's getting another story and nothing lines up. That's that's certainly less than ideal.
0: Yeah, it is beautiful. And I think the way it's supposed to be when counselors, pastors, we're on the same team. We want Jesus. We want spiritual, emotional, relational health for this person. So let's specialize and do what we can. Absolutely. Another little
1: nugget that got cut from the sermon. Uh, we did, I did talk a lot about uh anti-authority trends in our culture that all authority figures oftentimes are looked at in a little bit of a suspicious way. One way that you'll see that come up is any, any time in an anti-authority culture where uh, there's a situation between an authority and a subordinate figure uh, people oftentimes will just kind of see, say, or feel, I don't even need to know the details. I already know who's wrong. I just know the authority was the one who's wrong and I don't need any specific details on what happened because that's how it is. Authorities are always the one who are wronging the people under power. And it's like, man, I get it. they like this whole concept of power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And it's like, yeah, but we also believe that sin affects everyone. So it affects those in authority and it also affects those under authority. And so when you hear someone telling you that an authority figure hurt them, it's not that we don't listen, because when people are being victimized, we care, we listen, we want to make sure that the right authorities know so they can deal with it. But also, we have a little bit, we, we always want to ask some questions, because we want to get the details, we want to make sure that this is a valid accusation, a valid, valid concern, and just because you are the p- person under authority doesn't mean that your complaint is automatically valid, and the person in authority was automatically wrong.
0: Yeah. So yes, absolutely. There is power and authority out there that is corruptible and messed up. And at the same time, the response is not to swing the pendulum so far the other way to where I become the voice of authority over things in my life. But I need to recognize authority done in the proper God ordained way is actually so good for my soul and humbling myself and submitting myself to that authority might just be the best thing for me. Yeah. That's uh, I know
1: you had a a comment on the sermon that didn't make it for time unfortunately but this oh, idea that is good. <laughs> this idea of autonomy ironically means all authority is bad therefore I should be the authority. Oops. Yeah. Wait a second. Yeah. If you're sinful too that doesn't solve any problems. And just even in the definition we've got a we've got a cycle there that's a bit of a mess.
0: Yeah. And it's just not good for our souls. That's not how we are wired or designed. We were created by a creator under his authority, and he has established authority structures for our good and for our benefit so that we can flourish as human beings. Yeah, that's right. So, John, as we are thinking through relational dynamics within our church family, where are we as a church?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a question that we debated a lot in teaching team because we didn't want to overgeneralize and we didn't want to preach the sermon with too heavy of a hand where a lot of people out there could be going like almost creating a, a paranoid sensation of like, is this me? Am I doing this? And I didn't even know it. And here's, here's, I, I always think about this stuff in bell curves. Bell curves are one of the most helpful concepts for everyone to remember. They, they assume some amount of nuance. They assume that people are in a wide spectrum of places. So the bell curve, if I was talking about the bell curve of our church, there is a very loud, vocal minority of people who critique almost everything we do normally in the long run, they end up leaving our church. This is not something that I say with joy. It hurts me. I don't want that for them. Uh, Oftentimes we try to listen. Oftentimes the accusations are very unfounded, not biblical, not the right direction for our church. We still want good for these people, right? Like, but some of this is biblically warned. Jesus tells us it's coming There's whole books that deal with these issues. And so it's not surprising to us. It is still heartbreaking to us. We don't like it anytime it happens. At the other end of the bell curve, you have a loud vocal minority of people that we just know have got our backs. I mean, they go out of their way to encourage, to write notes, to help, to serve, to just no matter what. To give us the benefit of the doubt, it doesn't mean they don't ever have critiques or questions. They're thinking people, of course, they have critiques and questions. But we just know no matter what, they've got our back. They're in it. Then you've got the middle of the bell curve where the majority of people actually are. And what I would say about the majority is I, I'm i a very optimistic person and I'm a people person. When I meet you, my general assumption is that we're probably going to be really good friends and I should invite you over to my house for dinner and we'll just be best friends for life. Uh, and that's a really helpful skill as a pastor. A lot of times, um, I want to believe that everyone in our church, everyone in that middle, is pretty great, pretty wonderful, has our back most of the time, has some questions but nothing crazy. I hit on some of this in the sermon. The truth, though, I think, even for the the large group of people that are there, is you would be shocked not just at the volume of critique that we receive, but who it comes from the form it takes, the type of critiques it is, and the the, the kind of the way it happens. So, So what I'm talking about is the number of times when someone that we think of really highly, that we think of as a leader in our church, who comes to us kind of out of the blue to say, hey, I've been harboring bitterness for three years about this thing, and the thing is totally inaccurate, and it could have been cleaned up so quickly and so easily, and we still keep getting surprised How often that happens and who it comes from. And so part of that is we shouldn't be surprised Jesus told us it would come. It's part of the job. I get that. Part of it for us as a church family is why we wanted to preach this sermon. And we want to consistently help our people see this stuff, see the cultural influence of anti authority, sinful, inconspicuous distrust of authority that is not good for our church family in the long run. We are not asking for people's trust so that we can have more room to play in the darkness. That's not what we're about. We just wanna build the healthiest Jesus-centered family on mission that's possible. And when our time and our energy and our emotions are drained by dealing with a lot of stuff that never needed to become the big issue that it became when it's based on gossip and slander. And it's, it's heartbreaking for us and it should be heartbreaking for our whole church because it's not good for our church. It does not make much of Jesus in our city and help us have as much energy and passion fueled up to live on mission for our neighbors to know Jesus, to be the healthiest, most beautiful church family possible. And so we don't know. We don't know is part of the answer. We don't know where the middle skews exactly. Uh, My suspicion based on a pattern of the type of people and the type of issues that they bring and the amount of times when it's. I've been sitting on this for a long time. So now it's grown into this huge thing. Uh, I think that the American anti-authority piece affects a lot more people than, than, than people in our church family would think. I think it's affecting us more than we realize. Uh, and then one kind of one more level of that is even if you're not the one out there spreading the gossip, spreading the slander, maliciously attacking, you get affected just when you hear it. And if you don't have a good category to recognize it, to reject it, to help shut it down, then that skews and affects your view of the pastors over time in a really unhelpful and unhealthy way for you and for us and for our whole church family. So those are definitely the concerns while saying, I don't know exactly where the bell curve
0: lies. That is one reason why we have our family member meetings where we have that time like, hey, if there's any bitterness or relational offness you have with anybody in our church, Jesus says, go be reconciled immediately. So let's go ahead and do that. It's one of the many things I love about our church and that we take that literally. And also it's really heartbreaking whenever we find out oftentimes when it's too late, Hey, I've been harboring this and we've, we've given each other plenty of opportunities to do this. So Jesus commands us be reconciled immediately and Want to acknowledge for members of our church family, it could be really intimidating if you've never really like had a deep interaction with a pastor. But perhaps a comment was made or something feels off. So, what would be a appropriate way to start a conversation with a pastor before it festers into something out of bitterness and resentment? Yeah, totally. I think
1: you know there's a couple pieces to, to factor in there. One is form of communication. So Uh, shoot us an email. Say Hey, be really direct. Most of the time, our pastors respond really well to directness and have a harder time. If people are beating around the bush and then we're trying to kind of have to guess, what are they saying exactly? What's their concern? The more direct you can be, the better response you're going to get. Uh, don't be surprised if the response you get is, hey, that's a great question. I'm not actually the right pastor you need to be talking to. You need to talk to. So this happens sometimes. Like I'll get a question about wh- why we make the decisions we make about worship and song selection. It's like, I think you've got a great question or concern. You should be talking to Jay about this. And so that's not a rejection of you or I'm not concerned about your concern. It's the right person to be talking to is the guy who can actually do something about that, which in the case of worship and music selection is Jay Hendricks. With that in mind, uh, the Biggest thing is really what I love about this is this is actually what the scriptures are going to say for how we approach all relational conflict of any kind. And that is, we want to be self suspicious. So, like Paul says in early in first Timothy, uh, I'm the worst of all sinners. Okay, have you considered that sin might be affecting you in how you think about this concern? Yeah, you want to think about that before you approach. That should breed some real humility in how we approach it. Uh, we want to approach things with humility. Of hey, I, I probably don't know the whole situation, but can you help clarify this for me? Hey, I, I heard this and I'm a little concerned about it. Can you fill me in on what's going on here? When there's a a real obvious and perceived humility, so much of the battle's already won because now I just get to help clarify for you, or or potentially we're I'm wrong, potentially we're wrong in something, and because you approach it with humility, I get to go wow, I hadn't thought about that. I'm gonna sit on that and pray on that. I'm gonna talk to some other pastors and. I might even follow up with you because I think you might be seeing something that we weren't either way. That's such a win and it gets so much harder. If you come too strong, too angry, bitterness is there. Uh, Well, now I'm a little bit locked in on, I've got to in some ways say, Hey, I don't know what's going on with this anger. And we need to get to the root of
0: that. Also trying to figure out what your situation is
1: and how we might deal with that.
0: I love that. Self-suspicion, having the right posture, having the right approach. That's absolutely right. I've, I've had that in my experience. Someone wanted to ask me a question. They were really upfront. They'd say, I really want to get some understanding on this topic. Can I treat you to lunch next week? I
1: said, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, <laughs> and even then, I do think it's important to note, like, even if you approach something the right way, it doesn't mean your concern is necessarily valid. So you could even make a little quadrant out of this, right? Where you could have a valid concern, but come in a really unhelpful way. You could have a valid concern and come in a really helpful way. That would be the ideal. You could also have an invalid concern. And even if you come in a helpful way, the response might be, hey, actually, that concern is not very valid. And here are the reasons why. And then kind of the worst category is you've got an invalid concern and you come in a really unhelpful way. So ultimately, the goal is think through it first. Is this a valid concern or not? And then as you present it, come with some, some humility and We love that. It makes our church better. I can't tell you the number of times over the years that someone has brought a concern to us that has made our church better. We love that. We need it. Yeah. Uh, One more little thing that I didn't even have uh, typed up, but another thing that got cut uh, that's, I think, worth mentioning is this issue of honor for pastors is more of an issue in predominantly white churches than in predominantly minority and specifically African-American churches. And so I remember one of our pastors one time was serving in a predominantly African-American school. And he said, when he walked into that school, the honor, the overt honor he received from strangers was greater than any he had ever received in our own church. And so that's a, it's a funny cultural thing there where for some reason, I think this is reinforced in all kinds of movie narratives and news narratives but the whistleblowers are the heroes, the people who catch someone in authority. You're the hero. And that's just really deeply ingrained in us. And we just got to watch out for it. Like we, like we said in the sermon.
0: I remember I was teaching at Two Notch Aunt, and me switched and I taught at Two Notch and he taught at downtown. And so to open up my time, I opened with a very self-deprecating comment. I said, sorry, guys, Aunt is at our downtown church. So it looks like y'all are stuck with me for the morning. And I assumed that they were just going to laugh and shrug. But then they started applauding threw me off guard I was like oh okay
1: thank you <laughs> there if you just need a self esteem boost go and preach at Two Notch oh, man it was so good any any of our Two Notch <laughs> members checking out the podcast thank you we love you Love ya. and downtown in Lexington folks we obviously love you too and sometimes your heart is just as enthusiastically supportive and honoring you're not always as loud about it so if you could get a little louder <laughs> that'd be great quick personal shout out. I could give more, but, uh, Katya Gomez is one of our downtown members and, uh, she helps lead our prayer ministry. And she just let us know that she was going to have our prayer team just praying for our pastors this week. And man, it's a small little thing, but it it means a ton. And so thank you, Katya. Thank you for all of you, uh, who love and support and, uh, have valid criticism and concern because you just want our church to be as healthy as possible. And, um, man, I hope that decades from now, we're all still fighting a good fight for with the name and renown of Jesus and in the city of Columbia that we love. Absolutely. Well, thank you, John, for teaching.